Welcome to The Well, a podcast for mindful drinking. In our ongoing series about drinking in the age of coronavirus, we decided to take a turn internationally and speak with some friends in Taiwan, a country that has dealt with this pandemic rather successfully. One programming note, we did experience some technical difficulty while recording this episode, so please excuse the distortion and echo you hear throughout. Today on our show, we have Eric and Melanie Garcia Liu, a husband and wife duo who run a new American restaurant in Taipei called Gen Creative. It's one of those restaurants where even if you've just stepped off a plane from the States, every time I visit Taipei, it's one of my first stops. They do creative cooking, new American style, but using a lot of local Taiwanese ingredients and influences. And we're just happy to have them on our show today. Eric and Mel, why don't you two uh, introduce yourselves and you know talk about how you two ended up in Taipei and uh, what projects you got going on. I'm Melanie Garcia Liu. I am uh, Eric's wife and partner in uh, both of the businesses that we have here in Taiwan. I'm Eric, Eric Liu, and I was born and raised in Taipei, and my family immigrated to the States back in 1989. So I pretty much had two separate childhood, uh, one in Taiwan and one grew up in the States and uh, went to the traditional university route, but discover alcohol and girls and you know the actual academic part didn't really uh, interest me anymore so after after a few years i spent in la i uh, decided to move back home and that's when i decided that i, I wanted to attend culinary school and really pursue a career path of becoming a, a chef um, so i got into the food and beverage um, industry starting back in 2003. After graduating um, culinary school in, in New York, I moved to Las Vegas and worked there for on and off about 10 years. And during one of the time at one of the restaurants, uh, that's how I met my wife, Melanie. And we decided that we decided to move back to Taiwan uh, back in 2014 is because after spent about 10 years in Vegas, we decided that we, you know, our ultimate goal is that we want to do something of our own. So and we actually thought about staying in Vegas and open a place off the strip. But funny thing that kind of looking back right now, um, that's kind of how the, the trend of the city is kind of growing. But I think, I think in retrospect, given the time frame that we're at, I think it was a bit premature because a lot of talents are still being attracted to the strip. So small individual businesses is, is pretty tough to sustain itself off the strip in the suburbs. But it's it's a whole different ballgame right now in Vegas. So I was just saying uh, from some friends in Vegas uh, that being a small business owner there is not easy. No, no, it's not. I mean, just a just a sheer startup. I think to do business in the states as well. In Taiwan, I think it's pretty friendly, and so that's what that's when back then we we kind of hit a pinnacle of our all of our careers, and we kind of got the cross path and really looking forward, and kind of kind of had a conversation is that ultimately is if we're going to continue to work sixteen eighteen hour days, are we much rather we would much rather do it for ourselves, or we much rather do it for someone else? So. I think the ultimate answer was that um, we, we want to start something of our own. And that's when I brought up the possibility and the prospect of us starting something offshore, which is, you know, really far away from, from the comfort of our home back then. And we decided that we we're going to visit Taiwan and give Taiwan a shot. And so June 2015, officially, we opened our first uh, restaurant, Get Creative, here in Taiwan. Can you tell me what, what makes doing business in Taiwan easier than the States? 
So I think in general, I think the general environment is a lot more entrepreneurship friendly. In a sense, it's, it's in a good way and a bad way. It's because let's just say we're going to open a small 30C restaurants in Las Vegas, the build out to meet the health code, to get the liquor license, to get everything. And it's, it's you know, the cost itself is, is it could add up quite quickly. But here in Taiwan, because of the, because of the laws are different, restaurants that under certain amount of space occupancies, you're, you're not required to actually have a liquor license in order for you to sell liquor mm-hmm. or alcohol. So it makes it certain, certain things, certain areas, it makes it easier, but in certain areas, it also makes it, makes it a bit more challenging is because there's really no set standards um, or, or rule book per se for, for restaurant tours or entrepreneurs following the food and beverage industry. So let's just say health department decided to crack down. The laws itself is very, um, in, like it'll clearly identify. Um, so there's really no set guidelines. It's kind of like the wild, wild west back here. I mean, even just five years ago. So I think I think that's kind of kind of like the plus and minuses. But then again, I think I think any city in the world will kind of have that kind of personality and characteristics. Is that it kind of just depends on what you want to pick to suit you or what doesn't. Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right about the Wild West aspects of you know some of the F and B scene in, in Taipei. I know the scene has changed tremendously since I was there in 2015. And I mean, the whole time I worked there as an illegal immigrant, basically, you know, I, <laughs> I'd go every three months. I'd go on a on a you know company paid uh, weekend visa run, little vacay uh, for a few days to Hong Kong or Bangkok or whatever, because uh, just that's just kind of how it was, you know. Um, and it's it's said, crazy how you kind of just like that 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 itself just gets built into your. It's sort of a lifestyle that. Yeah, and I loved it. Don't get me wrong. Right. I mean, <laughs> no one, no one would, no one would say like, "Hey, you're an illegal immigrant and you can't work here." Instead of like, "Yeah, I live in Taiwan, I work here," but then you know, let's say every three months I get this short vacation to Hong Kong or or Osaka or somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, no problems with locals. No problems getting access to healthcare. I mean, the only obstacle to access, getting access to healthcare was language barrier, and that's just you know, I'm in a different mm-hmm. country. So once I found a friend to help me that friend being my girlfriend, then it was on like Donkey Kong, you know? Yeah, Ronnie, it's just a feeling it's, it's a little different because Melanie Melanie and our other business partner, Han, he's, he's Korean, he's born in Seoul, but he practically grew up in LA. We actually set up our business through the proper channel. So <laughs> both Han and Melanie were actually have their ARC, which is alien residence card. And, you know, they're legal to work in this, in, in Taiwan. They, they they pay taxes, you know? And so, no, but then this, I think, this is just, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm just saying it's because it's, it's a little different because we're, we're business owners. Owner, um, yeah. And so, yeah. So we're operating. So our mindset is that original, of course, and we want to do everything on high to the law and doesn't want anything to just to kick back and then say like, Oh, because you didn't do this. And now you have to, it's just another set of problems that unnecessary problems I'm going to have to deal with. So, and that's why we went through all the proper way of setting up it. I'm sure that if, if payment is going to return to Taiwan, you know, if, if, if there's prospects for payment to return to Taiwan to start a business, I'm sure, I'm sure you would have worked on the, on the same way as well. No, you know, uh, I'm interested about how the impact on landing in Taiwan was for you because I kind of relate to you in a bit because we're both not from there. Whereas Eric, you know, you were born there. Melanie, you're Guatemalan American. Do I have it right? Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> Finally. you know, these details, you know. Um, you're so used to calling me Mexican, so you got it. You got it right, though. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about uh, what it was like for you landing in Taiwan and starting a business there. 
Uh, well, we had been talking about it for a while. I think most of the time when you talk about that stuff with your friends, it's like, yeah, one day and then it kind of never happens. And Eric and Han had come out um, a few months before to kind of scope out like Taiwan. Like, is this a good idea? Should we do this and look at locations and stuff? And then they came back and it was almost like, hey, uh, yeah, let's do this. Let's go. We got to move in like two weeks, which was insane because I was like, all right, I got to put in my notice tomorrow at, at my job. And then we got to figure out how we're going to get out of here and whatever. So it all happened really quickly. And then moving here, you know, it was almost like we had not a whole lot of time to process it. But uh, once we got here, it was a whole, I don't know, I think you're excited to move somewhere. And then when you get there, you're like, what did I just do? I just left everything behind. I just quit my job. You know, I don't know the language. I don't know how I'm going to get around. So everything's kind of new and a little bit scary. But thankfully, we had Eric and his family here. So they were able to kind of be a little bit of padding for me anyway, to adapt and to kind of lead the way to how you do everything or where we can get things and stuff like that. It's just a bit of a culture shock, you know. But now I think, now that we've lived here for a few years, I I mean, obviously it's home now and everything's gotten a lot easier and it's not so much like I don't feel comfortable here because I feel like life is really easy here actually and we're super blessed to be here at this point in time when everything's going down you know have you have you picked up the language at all uh, <laughs> uh, I should know some more by now because I've been here five years but honestly if I mean we're <laughs> we're at work all the time so it's not like I have time to go to school or anything like that so the answer to your question is no <laughs> but I do understand a little bit like how to get around and like I can get home and get coffee and I understand like kitchen words and stuff, but I always wonder that for people that live in a foreign country with, you know, I guess the same question can apply to payment how it was for him when he was there. But I'm always curious, like how do you get around that language barrier? Um, Uber find comfort? and Google maps helps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, I think the massive, it's, it's actually the public transportation here in Taiwan is pretty, pretty easily accessible for, for foreigners because the, the apps and then you know even when we at the station it, it also has English okay especially when it gives directions and stops and, and I'm not saying this to be to be biased but I just spent a great great part of my my childhood in the states and me coming back and moving it's also I think it's also a social transition for me as well because working at the states and especially in the in, in the food and beverage industry um, I kind of really forgotten the way that how Taiwanese locals used to live and how was how I was when I was a little kid. And so me coming back here still takes a bit of time of adjustment. But I think not just payment, but all of my foreign friends, they can really attest to that is that Taiwanese locals are extremely friendly and, and it's very safe. It's really safe city and country to, to actually be uh, visiting and and, and, and and traveling around. So I think I think just uh, and again, like I said, I think just the whole environment setting itself and kind of just just makes it a lot easier for people to trans- to make that transition. I would okay. agree. And Rodney, to answer your question, I mean, you and I lived in New York at the same time, so you're mm-hmm. familiar with the New York public transportation system and the subway system. And as, as glorious of a system as it is, would you say it took a couple of weeks to figure out 
how the subway works because it's not really intuitive the way the signs are laid out and the destinations and stuff. Yeah, and there's also these weird quirks that you can only learn by experience. Yeah. Right. (laughs) In Taiwan, you know, as soon as I landed in Taipei, the public transportation system there, even though I'm not a native speaker, it took me about five minutes to figure out how it works. It's that intuitive. You know, people like myself and you, Melanie, and other foreign friends who visited and lived there, they have such an easy time is, is a testament to the country and the people and how welcoming uh, they are and how easy the system is to navigate despite the language barrier. Because I, for, for the longest time, I got along just fine by knowing how to say, go straight, go left, go right. You know, <laughs> I had my mm-hmm. maps and I'd get in the taxi. I'd say, ni hao, you know, hello. Yeah. And then I'd say, you know, go straight, go left, go right. And then stop. And then she says, thank you. And that's, you know, those five or six words, you could get by if you wanted to on just that in the city. And especially if you're on a vacation for like a few days or a couple of weeks, like that's enough. I know. Um, and, and all that is a testament to, I think, not an accident. You know, it's it's cultural. And it's also the type of society that's there. And um, imagine if all you knew in America was how to say hello and thank you. You'd be robbed. You'd be robbed within like a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because here they don't have a problem with you, you know, not speaking Mandarin. They'll actually help try to help you out and figure out what you're looking for or what you mm-hmm. need. And, like everything, they'll even look on their phone and like transit stuff for you so you can try to understand each other. But I feel like even. And I speak English, so it's not a problem. But I think in the States, people have that tendency to be like, uh, speak English, you're in America. And you're like, oh, that's not very, you know. And you're kind of like, what? You know, they're visiting and they want to have a good time and you're not helping. But I think here people just want to help you out, want you to have like a good time or help you get what you need, whether you're like at a pharmacy or like a phone shop or whatever. Every single non-Taiwanese person who's visited Taiwan has had that story that you just mentioned, including myself, where you're standing on the street, you're looking at your phone, you're you're kind of look like you're lost. You you don't have to ask somebody for directions. People will come up to you, they yeah. can tell that you're lost, <laughs> and they ask you, um, you know, can I help you? Yeah. yeah. And and then and this actually English English pop, uh, speaking population here is actually quite high. Because English, I think English itself is such a such a widely used language, and um, so a lot of younger generations, even older generations, uh, they do know how to communicate in English. So I think I think that, and that's why I think it makes it makes a lot of a lot of people feel so welcome. And I think the best example I can give is provide is when Melanie's dad uh, visited uh, when we got married a year and a half ago to Taiwan, and her dad is well known for not a big fan of traveling, especially being on the transatlantic flight for over 13 hours. Um, landed, landed in Taiwan, it was near dinner time, so we took him out to dinner and then he went to bed and the next day, and it's, I think the next day he woke up, we we took him, we got on the MRT and it was start touring around Taipei City and, and that's when he started realizing that every bit of balance of expectations and and, and and his his original thoughts on how his daughter was living in a different country has been completely thrown out the window. That he cannot stop commenting on how clean the streets are, how people just 
polite you just you, the, the how clean the massive like the massive transportation you know everything he just he loved about this country that he cannot stop talking about even a year after it happened he, he left he, he wants to come back so I think I think I think that for me I mean from a local standpoint of view viewing that I think it's it's really gratifying and I'm, I'm really proud to to be able to be part of this and I'm sure payment's going to lead us into other parts of the conversation is that you know, during this tough time right now, and I think I think the world's kind of have a different view on Taiwan and and how things are actually going on in Asia right now. So, so this is all actually a great segue to discuss differences between uh, Taiwanese society and American society. We're living in the time of this global pandemic, and I like to say Taiwan is within sneezing distance of China, right? Which is where the virus is alleged to have. Uh, originated and yet their casualty numbers you know their death toll is like something like six or seven in a country of 23 million and you compare that with the over 100,000 deaths that the, America has considering that yes America is a larger country but the percentage uh, of deaths that we have considering how far we are as well uh, compared with how close Taiwan is 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 pretty mind-boggling so one of the things we wanted to discuss with, with you, Eric and Melanie, is um, is it get your perspective of the Taiwanese government's response to the pandemic and how people responded to it. I think first and foremost, it's it, it's all about learning from your mistakes because Taiwan suffered tremendously back in the early two thousands when SARS happened, and this island, this country, was nowhere near prepared to face this such a thing, and that's why we suffered so much. And I. I, I couldn't. I couldn't really speak from experience because that's that's when I was I was still in the states. But but through conversations with my parents, my family members, and my my friends here, and I said, uh, as far as I can remember, is yeah, Taiwan took a huge, huge, huge hit, and the government then since they were already create a contingency plan. It's just that because we're such a small country and an island, we we need to be able to be self sustained. And if there's any future possible signs of a huge outbreak. Then they they have this, they they have steps that they go through, and I can recount earlier this year after right after Chinese New Year, um, you know that's when the, I think before Chinese New Year is when the news started coming out about Wuhan about this you know this this virus, and I think I think the government itself actually they didn't really publicly announce that a whole lot of information, um, but then I think they already had to start implementing a lot of procedures, and then. I think that's when the CDC, Taiwanese CDC, started hosting. Every single day, we have we have a uh, report to the general public about how many cases that we have, uh, whether it's domestic or foreign, how many people was being quarantined, um, what are their what are their status. Every single day up until June seventh of this year, without fail, the government is basically this open transparency about what's going on within this country and what is the government doing with about. It. Again, I think what we discussed earlier about uh, what Payment said about laying the groundwork about how culture um, of Taiwanese people are, um, when it really comes down to these kind of, I think, social issues, I think it's really easy for everyone to start following uh, the procedure that the government puts out. The social distancing didn't really start up until, I think, it's end of March. But then again, Taiwanese government has been really proactive about shutting down the hospital and really make sure, making sure that all the needed procedure uh, steps is, that needs to be taken uh, to prevent further cases or cross-contamination that has been taken. So 
Um, that's our, that's my personal experience living through it. But then again, it's, you never really felt, I guess, the panic stage of the fight. And it's like, you know, people rushing to the supermarkets and buying all the toilet papers that they can. Um, we, we didn't really see that here. Then I think, I think, I just think that because, because we have lived through the SARS back in the early 2000s. And I think a lot of people remember that. Um, so they're actually better reacted this time uh, than before. Was there like a shelter in place or did you, sh- did they shut down businesses? No, 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 zero. No, none of that happened. It is kind of awkward because the reason why I say it's kind of awkward is because I, I, have, I have many, many friends that, that are operators in the States and, and, and Europe and they don't have that luxury, right? Because the government literally just shut everything down. But then Taiwan did it. And my, my justification for using the word awkward is that our business level, you know, we took a huge hit because over half of our clientele are foreign travelers. So once Taiwan shut down its borders, certain aspect of the business, you know, start taking a hit. And so we have we have friends here that 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 suffer even 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 more than us is because their entire clientele is literally based on foreign visitors from Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore. You know, in Southeast Asia. So I think I think that's why I, I said it's awkward because the government here did mention the possibility of shutting it down if the cases has reached a th- threshold, but we never got there. So mm-hmm. literally from the month of March to this two month span, every single restaurant started doing takeouts and deliveries and try to pivot into the different ways. But when this pandemic happened, and, and you said the government had its particular response, but were they m- mandating masks, people to wear masks and stuff like that? Or people just naturally knew from past experience to that this is something that they got to do? I think wearing masks is a way of life here. I think uh, at the beginning it was more of a suggestion and then it... Yeah, it, and, then, and then they actually enforced it for people to get on buses and, and the MRT, which is the mass, um, you know, the railroad transportation here. It, it's required uh, because if you don't, they'll find you. 15,000 MT. Yeah, which is... 5,000 U.S. So was there any kind of protest or people saying that this is a hoax? I think everybody was kind of <laughs> really compliant, actually, which is, I mean, to me, a little bit weird, but whatever. I mean, if it happened here before, there's a reason for that. And I think it was a, a suggestion, like, if you don't have to go out, don't go out, stay home. And everybody kind of just complied to that. And I think that's also when our business took a dive. Um, and also everybody else, you know, they're very much like, all right, we'd just rather stay home and uh, do takeout or uh, some people did shut down, but it was uh, voluntary. It wasn't mandatory. But now it's a little bit safer now since May business started picking up. Well, I think I think it's also human nature as well as when when the pandemic first started. But this is right before Taiwan shut down its borders is that it's still allowing Taiwan nationals to come back from other countries. And like I mentioned before, it's the, the press conference that every single day this Taiwanese CDC is hosting. They have the statistics about any, any local new cases or near cases of foreigners. And basically, there's a very extensive period of time. There were zero local cases, but all the new cases are Taiwanese nationals coming back from abroad. It, 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 it kind of it it just kind of puts in people's you know, the mindset of saying that, hey, maybe maybe we should stop going out. Um, and then, and then that's, that's weathered through this storm right now, and then we'll see what happens in the future, right? Because if there's 
no clear case of showing that you know the locals are actually having it's showing new cases, proven new cases, um, and it's all these foreign the travelers that are abroad and they be in contact with other nationals and and and, and so that kind of I think that kind of puts a, you know puts fear in people's mind itself. Literally, there were, it's uh, you, we will go to work on on a Monday morning, and there's no cars on the street, but business as usual. So dining rooms never closed, no retail ever shut down. It's just people decided no, to not. Just people decided to not not go out, and and that's when Uber Eats and other other, other local um, platforms here, their business thrived, and, and and that's kind of what sparks a new pivoting point for for local businesses here. Is that people really, really start looking into the possibility of, or they try to speculate what is the future of the food and beverage industry, uh, not just Taiwan and, and globally. Is that are we really going to truly relying on delivery system, or there's something else above and beyond? So, can you tell me a little bit about what the testing is like in Taiwan? Yeah, there's there are outposts, there are outposts set up at the uh, local hospitals, um, and there's there there are SOPs that are being being placed. Is that they basically saying if you if you shown if you have shown um, the above symptoms if you, if you choose to then yes you can go in and get tested and of course all these flights that are coming in still coming in back then um, everyone basically has to go through a quarantine state and then actually it's actually pretty pretty funny how how this quarantine this whole self quarantine works is it, it is self quarantine because if you if you don't test positive at the moment. Then they'll send you back to your house for 14 days. You have to self quarantine for 14 days, and what they do is they give you a SIM card, which the CDC will contact you at random times of the day. And there are cases that are, I mean, we're we're reading some news, and there there are people saying that they got this phone call from the CDC and saying that um, they just want to cross, they just want to double check that they're okay, they're feeling alright, and next thing you know, within three minutes, someone's knocking on the door. And they're actually randomly checked to see if we actually complying the self quarantine and then you staying inside. The first case that this one this one gentleman got caught for leaving his self quarantine, he got fined one million Taiwanese dollars. And what's wow. the what's that uh, convert to? Let's do that quick conversion. One million is um, you divide by thirty. Thirty three thousand. So thirty yeah, so they they located him. Um, he was, I think, he was like on his way to a, a grocery store, and he was just on the street. And yeah, they they went to the local court, the city council court, and they find him one million NT. So one of the things that I think is important for the listeners to understand what about Taiwan's government system, without going into a full on civics lesson, is that it is not an authoritarian government. It is a legitimate viable democracy that was my experience um and the reason why i mention that is because i think americans have this idea that you know they have the truest democracy in the world and like every little thing that happens they want to you know um you know like things like protesting the face masks and stuff like that uh, as an infringement uh on their liberties whereas in taiwan in your experience nobody um expressed a protest like that and i think in case people were under the impression that, oh, this is this is because it's an authoritarian regime, that's not the case. You know, if you asked Americans if, if the government was to hand a SIM card and say, uh, and somebody shows up at your door, they'd be very suspicious. Sometimes, rightfully so, mm-hmm. but I think you know, um, there's Americans protest about different things, oftentimes for 
for good reasons, such as the police brutality and stuff that's going on, that's coming to the forefront right now. But before all, before that was a flashpoint, they were protesting ridiculous things. And in, in my opinion, yeah. you know, the requirement to wear a face mask. Yeah. Um, so just kind of wanted to give a little broader context that Taiwan is a democracy, that it's not some sort of authoritarian regime uh, where Big Brother's looking down on you. It's just people understand that, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it seems in my experience was that Taiwanese people understand that the community and the government have a partnership to help society advance forward. Absolutely. And I, th I think going back to that SIM card incident, it's, I mean, it's, it really just depends on the context of why that is happening or it's being handed out, right? So I don't, I don't think the Taiwanese government is going to just handing out SIM cards to foreigners, every single foreigners or, or people that come into this country. And it's just so, you know, it's just, it's, it's not, it's not a matter of either of the spines, but it's just a way of them to track during this pandemic issue that, that, you know, they can actually have the right statistics and be able to track people and, and monitor their health. Uh, I think that's the, that's the baseline for, for, for the intention. It seems like Taiwan's government's main response was to stop people from coming into the country and then also aggressive tracing and just monitoring the situation, right? Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, did they institute any kind of stimulus like we did in America for small businesses or just businesses in general? Yes, well, of course. The pandemic, the fact itself, didn't really hit all the businesses until March. So the first wave of the stimulus package that the Taiwanese government put out, they're asking small businesses to compare their sales from January to February previous year. If it, if it, was, if it drops lower than, than 12%, then you fit a certain criteria. But, but, then, but, then, but then the response from the general public is that, well, those, those comparisons are not accurate because we're, we're not actively being affected up until March and in April and, and, and so forth. And the way that we conduct our uh, business tracking here is every, everything is basically tracked on by monthly basis. So the sales for January and February are reported in March. And then for March and April are reported in May. And the first, the first part of the stimulus package came out. And, and um, as I mentioned before, the government is asking businesses to compare themselves um, from January to February to the, to the previous years to see if there's any significant drop. Um, and that's why the response from the general public is, is that, well, the, the, the record is not accurate because we can't compare these two months because we're not affected by them. Hmm. And so, and there, there are other ones that there are other ones that are being introduced, but it's, it, it's, it's basically, it's more or less, it's a government subsidized loan rather than the stimulus program Got because it. again going back trace back to what i said earlier is, is that we're not at a, at a at a complete complete shutdown so it wouldn't it wouldn't really wouldn't make sense if the government has has to put out a stimulus program and and kind of dig a bigger hole for themselves to kind of fill later on down the path it's just that it kind of it kind of just asks the general question is who we're supposed to help first what happened with the 2008 uh global economy crisis the bailout and everything happened towards the big businesses mm -hmm. and now the global economy is kind of looking at this question this this, this global pandemic this time is that how are we going to help all the small businesses mm -hmm. because it's not so much about the big corporations anymore 
So I think I think Taiwan in the in in the sense the ways the, the best way that I can I can I can say because I actually lived through it um, back in the end of March we actually we had a meeting among the partners and then and really to really really actually look at the, the future of this restaurant this brand is that how we how are we gonna how are we gonna cope this and rebound from it and and the reason why I'm saying this brand is because how funny thing is <laughs> we actually opened a, a, a new restaurant right after Chinese New Year which is. If if you if you're looking from a from a from a timing standpoint of view, it's part of the worst timing ever. <laughs> in here in Taiwan, right? It's that it's right after Chinese New Year, which can can be a testament about this. Is after Chinese New Year, no one goes out to spend money um, because it's one of the biggest major holidays here in Asia. And, and let all well, we open a restaurant, um, brand new restaurant, um, and especially and and we have this pandemic right on top of it, but. The crazy thing is that Gun Creative, our first restaurant, um, compared to Botless, our new restaurant, um, its performance is night and day. Hmm. And Botless hmm. itself has attracted nothing but local clients, and which I think is also a true testament to any business, is that you have to be able to win the hearts of the locals and be in tune with their spending habits. Otherwise, I think the longevity of any concept of any business is going to be in question. And if you if you take away the travel ones, the travel, especially Japan, Japanese, we have a lot of very high uh, percentage of Japanese clientele. If you take away from that, and then the Koreans and the, the, the Cantonese that used to travel here, and then Singaporeans, you pretty you pretty much left with nothing. And we we have friends that you know they're they're one mission star restaurants. They're they're rated in Asia top fifties. And these are the restaurants and the concept that thrives on foreign visitors because mm-hmm. these are these are the cuisines that Taiwan is proud to be able to say, hey, you know, look at us because right now we have restaurants on the world's platform that we can showcase local ingredients and local talents and and and, and whatnot. But all of a sudden, that came to a screeching halt. I think I just think that I also made a joke with 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 I think with one night was just out. Um, I think Asians finally have this comeback from whatever social um, bad reps that we have. And then all of a sudden this pandemic happened and it's it's going back to square one. (laughs) So as business owners, were there any silver linings that have come out of this situation? Like has this pandemic uncovered any kind of inefficiencies in the current restaurant business model? Absolutely, I think I think one of the biggest thing, I, I think one of the biggest aspect about about being you know I mean, as a business owner is that you gotta you gotta be able to make adjustments um, and, and make that call. So, of course, like like everybody else, we we discussed and we talk about whether or not we should offer a takeaway program um, or we should sign a contract with the food delivery program that we can have a better audience outreach. But I think at the end of the day, our habits of doing business and I'm saying ours is, um, you know, within these two brands are, are firm beliefs. And, and of course we have other business partners and because we believe in this, that especially Taiwanese market is, is quite small. If everyone else is doing the same thing and you're doing the same thing as everyone else is, then what is the difference? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's why I think the biggest, one of the biggest tough questions that we, the most difficult questions that we keep on asking ourselves is, we can we can shrink down, you know, let's say the size of operation. We can we can cut back the days of days that we're opening, um, the size of the team that we have, and, and whatnot. But 
but what's next? Because no one has the right answer. And, and the scary thing is we, 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 we've been living through this entire, all this attention and booming around bartenders and bars around the world and restaurants and, you know, traveling, you better influencers and all these, you better, you know, especially in Asia or in Europe or it's, you'd be able to hop on a plane and be, be at a different country within, within two hours and three hours at the time. All of a sudden that got taken away from everybody. And, and no one, again, like I said, it's no one has the right answer as far as to how things are going to become the norm again. Do you have any thoughts on what, what you think that per the future of uh, the restaurant and bar industry is moving forward? I still, I, th- I th- well, personally, I have two, I have two views. I think I think no matter what, at the end of the day, I think restaurants and bars are still are still social places for people that to go on the internet. And I don't think that will ever change. Um, but then to what extent, I, I, I can't say. And my second view is that since Taiwan is an island and Taiwan has a very unique way of, our consumer has a very unique way of spending and, and, and God experiencing is that Ronnie, there's so many eating options here in tai- Taiwan. It's, it's, it's mm. insane. Mm-hmm. It's insane that our restaurants have been open for five years, five solid years. And I'm not patting you know my own back and tuning my own horn, but we, we, we are quite popular among certain demographics. Imagine if you're in LA or New York, um, you know some of the restaurants has hit publications and GQ and, and some certain things. You chances are the general public have probably heard of them. <laughs> not in Taiwan. I still meet people today that has even never heard of us, and we're baffled that we've been open for five years and they never knew about us. <laughs> I do think I do think there's a huge potential for food delivery platforms, but then again, it's I don't see a very long longevity in that. You know, because I, not just Taiwanese people, I don't I don't think anyone is willing to to too keen on staying home every single day and just order takeouts. That that's just that to me just it's, it's not. It doesn't equate into a, a sound argument. From everything I've heard about how Taiwanese government and Taiwanese society and the community handled the coronavirus pandemic, naturally, we understand things via comparison, right? So from our perspective as Americans, and Rodney, you can probably attest to this as well, it seems like you guys had it figured out how to do the right way. I'm sure you, have, you may have some crit- criticisms of your own, but compared to the shit show that it is here uh you guys definitely seem to have some 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 things handled and figured out um you know so like for me i just keep thinking about rodney that that story you told me about how when the shutdown happened here i mean it's like stories like it basically felt like you know, like in those movies, in the movies when the DEA is is invading, and you're like, hurry, flush the coke down the toilet. You know, like grab all the files and this, this, let's that's go home. Was, that's what it was at my job. It was like one second, no one was t- thinking about this, and then almost at the drop of a dime, they realized it was something serious, and they were basically kicking us out of the office, telling us wow. not to come in on Monday and take whatever files we need. It was seemed pretty rushed mm-hmm. and. There's very little communication and everyone's just kind of confused because no one was really aware of, I mean, there were pockets of people. I live in LA and you know, the San Gabriel Valley, a lot of restaurants were closing. A lot of Chinese restaurants were closing in late January, early February. Mm -hmm. Some of them started taking temperatures and everyone thought it was weird. And I also remember reading a lot of articles about how businesses in the SGV and Koreatown LA 
were starting to suffer because of the bad PR around coronavirus from those areas. And I, I know a lot of restaurants there were already feeling the feeling the pain well before any kind of shelter in place was going on. But it seems like none of that was going on in Taiwan because the, the people in the community were, like you said, experienced in dealing with these things. And they also, there was like a collective unity as far as like how to approach it and how to comply. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, I just think that, I think it's just culturally it's a little different because it's, it's a sense like the way that the government here has faced the issue is a lot more systematic than what, what's happening in the States. Because I think it's just the sheer size of the United States is, I think it's very difficult to, be, to become extremely efficient in passing down information. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that on a, on a city of skill, let's just say it's, Taipei is extremely small. So in order for the government to be able to pass down information to have the, city, the local city government to be able to reinforce it, I think it's a lot more efficient and easier than compared to China, all these countries in Europe, and especially the United States, because it has to go through so many different channels. Even the CDC in the States in the beginning has very mixed information regarding how they should deal with this pandemic when it really the outbreaks start happening. And especially when New York is taking this huge hit on, you know, every single day, it's just there's, there's outbreaks in it and whatnot. I just think at that scale to really, to really execute any vision, I think it's just itself is pretty difficult. I also think it had yeah. a lot to do with the fact that there was a precedent here and there's no such thing in the States that people don't really expect or know what to do or how to act. And I think that caught everybody off guard. Like you said, like people are just like, shut down, go home. So that's a little bit scary too, because you're like, what's, what's going on? Yeah. You know, you're but not think, Melanie is absolutely right because, because I'm sure after this, and you know, because since there's a precedent, then... Um, I'm sure the CDC and, and other other government agencies will have a better plan and better react. Um, so I think I think that's part of the biggest difference in, 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 in reaction to it. And and you know, and again, it's also based on the cultural differences. I think that's that's why. And because I, I have to say this too, is during you know when 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 the states was actually in total shutdown. We're, we're as guilty as it is. We, we, we will still go out. We still go to our friends' restaurants and support them and whatnot. And we, you know, there's there's people around us. They're drinking. They're eating. And it just, if it, 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 it's it's such a weird feeling knowing the fact that other parts of the world right now are in complete dismay, and then we're here having a dinner, having a good time as we have your shared experiences and shared stories. You know, it's kind of like this mm-hmm. this weird parallel to 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 what's going on. Well, I think you're you're both. Uh, quite insightful about the difference between why Taiwan was able to handle it the way they were. But I think one of the other things that's the foundation of all that is the government and the people trust science. I think while you're correct, Eric, in that America and a lot of countries are a lot bigger and there's a lot more channels of communication to go through and a lot of people disagreeing here and there, even within organizations like the CDC. I also think that it doesn't help the situation when when half the people, at least half the people in the administration, are not sure if science a is a real thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and that that certainly doesn't help. And I think that helps the situation in Taiwan because, like, that's one argument they don't have to have with each other. There's nobody's sitting there. There's nobody in the room 
sitting there trying to argue two plus two equals five. You guys have got past <laughs> that one, and you're like, all right, now let's solve the problem. One other thing I wanted uh, to address, and, and you guys talk about, is is the whole mask wearing thing. We touched upon it a little bit before, but when I was in Taiwan, people were wearing masks yeah. anyways. And when I first got there, I thought, how strange is it that people are wearing masks? And I, and coming from this Western perspective, I thought, well. They must be really germophobic because, like, they're wearing masks on the subway train. And later I learned that that's not the case. It's not that they're germophobic. It's just that they're wearing a mask because they think they may be uh, sick or whatever, and they're doing that a courtesy for others. Uh, am I right? I think even when you ride the train here, there's an announcement if you feel sick or if you think this was before. If you have a cold, please wear a mask so that you're not infecting others, right? And then, so here also, I think it was a big thing that people already wear masks and they feel comfortable wearing masks, and you can buy them anywhere, as opposed to the states or where my parents are, where they're like wear a mask and everyone's like what a what wear a mask? I don't I don't even know where to buy that or why would I want to wear that? I can't breathe. So I think it's a very different view on wearing a mask versus here where you're like oh yeah everybody already does it anyway. And the perspective is to look out for somebody else, look out yeah. for your community, whereas. Americans view it as, why should I wear a mask? That's an infringement yeah. on my rights. The, the, the sentence here, the, the everything here begins yeah. with I. Is how does it affect me first, and then do I like the idea? Whereas my experience in countries like Taiwan is, how does the community affect it, and then how do I feel about it? Like you said, people are taking temperatures in the States, and they think that's weird. Here, that's still... You well, go here anywhere. It's the norm. norm now. Yeah. Is to enter our restaurants, we... Spray both of your hands with um, alcohol and we take temperatures, body temperatures. I think also it's just a peace of mind for everybody, even though maybe you're like, oh, maybe I don't really need it or I can just wash my hands. But I think you stop everybody at the front and you're like, all right, check your temperature and we have the right to refuse service if you are over that just to protect everybody that's in here already. And I think some Americans have kind of a, a distorted view of privacy. You know, they, they will complain that something like taking someone's temperature or, if the, or a government entity wanting to take your temperature is somehow a violation of their privacy rights. Meanwhile, they've already sold all their rights via the Google <laughs> searches and their credit and their credit card spending, you know, and, and, and knowing, and as far as, you know, government tracking, I mean, if you have a cell phone, every single government agency in America can figure out where you are. Yeah. If they want to. But they get up in arms about having to wear a mask or having their temperature taken. I think Eric and I had um, this conversation so because we'll have if somebody comes in and sits down, you know, you'll politely ask them if you can please take the temperature first. And it, I, we we looked at each other and kind of laughed. We're like, if this happened in the states, people wouldn't be like, oh yeah, yeah, no problem. Like take my temperature and you know sanitize my hands. Be like, excuse me, why? Like, why do you want to take my temperature? Why do you want to do this? So I think it's a very different view on that as well. Well, I'll say this also is that in the States, it, it's you see it community based. It's different. Communities have different different regions, have different ideas and thinking on it. And for whatever reason, it's split among ideological lines where places that tend to be more, let's say, liberal, like Los Angeles, you don't have this problem. And restaurants, some of them are already as they're reopening, are instituting some of these measures, whereas Places like 40 minutes down in Orange County, which is more predominantly white and conservative, 
they probably going to have a more difficult time with this. They're already having a backlash against, you know, their, their government entities asking them to wear masks and and protesting that. And some people even getting some of the public health officials in Orange County resigning because they're getting death threats because they mandated people to wear masks. So for some reason, it's broken down among ideological lines here, uh, which doesn't seem to be the case in Taiwan yeah. at all. Yeah, and, and, and I think looking into the future, again, it's they're saying there are talks about is is now that there might be a second wave coming back. Um, but then again, it's I'm, I'm not quite sure how LA is functioning right now is because well I know Vegas is so slowly opening back up. But what is what is the government's contingency plan if the outbreak comes? There is none. I think actually what America is doing by default because of the lack of leadership is they're just going to go for a herd immunity the hard way at some point. And then hope for a vaccine, but there's really yeah, no plan. Vaccine, but there's no, yeah, there's no clear sight of that in, in, in any in any spoke space. We don't have the, the the people and the leadership to pull off any kind of plan. So whatever you want to do goes. And certain certain cities and governments are more responsible than others. But mm-hmm. for the most part, it's sort of disturbing how many places have kind of full on reopened. Well, Melanie and Eric. We appreciate so much that you took your time out uh, to join us on uh, on this call. What time is it for you guys? Actually, it's after service yeah, late, right? Two thirty in the morning. Yeah. Two thirty a.m. Saturday night. Yeah, let's let you guys get to uh, get to your party um, <laughs> that you're going to. Uh, Rodney and I will be staying at home uh, during yes. the pandemic. So ordering takeout. <laughs> 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 well, thank you, Payman, and thank you, Ronnie, for the opportunity. Uh, it was a pleasure, pleasure speaking to you both. <laughs>